Welcome to episode 43 of Health Unchained. I hope you all enjoyed the series I published last week featuring entrepreneurs from the Mass Challenge Health Tech Startup Incubator. I know they were late on blockchain, but I do think the startups that I interviewed are doing important work in the healthcare space and hope you enjoyed those conversations. To me, blockchain is more than just another technology tool that companies can use, but rather a transformation in the way societies will interact with each other. But there is a ton of hype out there, and it could be difficult to filter out the noise in this new landscape. For this episode, I speak with Robert Miller, Senior Consultant at Consensus Health. We talk about the landscape of blockchain technology, where it can be most effective in healthcare, current projects that are actually succeeding with blockchain, and we also take a stab at where we think Facebook's new LibraCoin will be going. During this conversation, we try differentiating between hype and reality in this emerging space. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. I would like to inform my listeners about an upcoming conference in the fall called Converge to Accelerate 2019. It will focus on the convergence of blockchain and telehealth technologies. The event will be hosted in the Seaport World Trade Center in Boston on October 15th, 2019, and the speaker lineup is already super impressive. I'm really excited to be involved with this event. I encourage my listeners, especially my local Boston listeners, to check out the lineup. Conv2x 2019 is currently accepting applications for scientific abstracts, posters, and workshops for the event. The deadline for submissions is July 17th, so check it out today before it's too late. For more details, check out the registration link in the show notes of the podcast player you are on right now. If you are planning on attending, reach out to me and let's plan to connect at the event. I'll provide further updates as the date gets closer. And remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now with that said, let's get on to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today I'm speaking with someone who's been involved in the healthcare blockchain space in multiple capacities. Robert Miller is an advisor to Remedy Chain. He's a fellow at Blockchain and Healthcare Global. He previously worked as the director of business development at Medical Chain. He co-founded Honeycomb Health and most recently serves as a senior consultant at Consensus Health. Robert, thank you for joining the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I think it's overdue, right? Yeah, it's been a while. We've been trying to get together for at least a few months now. Um, so I'm really excited for this conversation. Me too. Can you maybe just give, you know, your version of your background to our audience so they know like what's you know get some context about your experience? 
Yeah, I, I have a pretty eclectic background. Um, so I, I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. I've been surrounded by healthcare my whole life. Um, I was deeply interested in technology from day one. Um, but, you know, growing up in a fairly small town in, in Minnesota, no one else really was. And I was, and, and that uh, trained me to be a contrarian, I suppose, which is how I ended up working in blockchain and healthcare. <laughs> Um, I've been tinkering with tech all my life, so coding, I'm, I'm um, a technical person. I found Bitcoin in 2011. Um, we can talk about that a little bit more. You know, the first step in my career was I was an algorithmic trader for a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I wrote and operationalized algorithms to trade foreign exchange movements. Um, and it was a- around that time when cryptocurrency really started in, in the larger blockchain space really started to take off in a way that it hadn't before. You know, uh, Ethereum had been released in 2015 and then the DAO was coming around. There was a lot of really interesting, you know, foundational work being done. Um, and I was keen to get involved in a more serious way. Uh, there was some interest in applying the same sort of forex algorithms to crypto markets that we were doing in, um, in traditional markets. And, but I wanted to get my hands on and, and to um, build something because I thought that the technology was going to be really important and I stu- still do. And given my background in healthcare, um, having uh, you know studied a fair amount, grew up around healthcare my whole life, deeply interested in it. Um, when I wanted you say to grew do something. up in healthcare your whole life, what do you mean by that? I uh, grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. Mayo Clinic is there. Both my parents are, um, have worked in healthcare. You know, all of my friends are in healthcare. I interned mm-hmm. the Mayo. Um, you know, just been surrounded and, and, and immersed in healthcare for most of my life. And so I, I quit my job at um, the Algo Trading Fund that I was at, and I joined a, a startup called Medical Chain. Mm-hmm. I was employee number one there. I um, was the director of business development. You know, long story short, I, I left that. I started my own company, Honeycomb Health. Um, my founder and I had an amicable split. Uh, we had different opinions on you know, where things were going and, and what the company was. And when I had the um, opportunity to join Consensus to help start and grow their healthcare vertical under the auspices of Heather Flannery, you know, I knew that was what um, I had to do. Um, and so that's how I got to where I am now. You know, as you point out, I wear a couple different hats. So I'm a fellow of Blockchain Healthcare Global. I sit on some standards bodies, Hughes Blockchain Working Group, um, recently HIMSS Blockchain Task Force. I sit on the board of Remedy Chain. I'm an advisor there. Um, I actively write and publish papers on blockchain, healthcare, privacy preservation, ethics, and um, I manage a newsletter. So, Yeah, so... Obviously, you know the space pretty well, and you speak at a lot of conferences as well. And I know um, later this year you'll be on the speaking on a panel, I believe, at the Converge to Accelerate conference in Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you want to talk um, a little I'll, bit I'll be about there. that? Uh, I, I don't know if I'm a. I actually don't really know what what the format is. I think I think it's a panel, but it'll be um, a debate broadly on privacy and whether. Um, this kind of new paradigm of technologies in healthcare require new sets of, of rights um, focused around data and, and your privacy. And that's a huge topic, privacy, not just in healthcare, but in general for all people, for in all industries, really, finance, um, supply chain. Uh, privacy is 
key. And I think, you know, you mentioned this in a few of your newsletters too. You want to kind of briefly introduce your, uh, the Burt's Weekly, the Beyond Blocks newsletter to folks? Yeah. So, you know, like you, Ray, I'm a, a zealot for this space. I spend a lot of time thinking about it, reading the news. Um, and I found myself, you know, every single day doing a scan of the news and um, reading and trying to stay up to date on this blisteringly fast space. Uh, and performing all this work to figure out, you know, what, what is signal and what is noise. Hmm. Um, and I realized that, you know, other people might find that valuable too, and I'm already doing the work. Um, so I just started packaging um, what I was already doing, crawling through the news and finding ideas and updates that are important in blockchain and healthcare into a, a weekly newsletter that I send out um, on Sunday for free with a little bit of commentary, kind of giving context and outlining why things are important. Um, and, you know, I'd be doing that regardless of if anyone else found it valuable, but um, it's incrementally growing and I'm thinking about how I can expand that and, and add more value to the community now. Yeah. And personally, I find it extremely valuable. I look at it every week and I actually use it in some of my uh, Health Unchained News Corner um, segments. So thank you for doing that. Great work. Uh, much appreciated that. And, you know, Let's kind of dig into this. You mentioned how there's a lot of news and a lot of hype too, and it's mm-hmm. become rather difficult to discern from you know the hype from the reality and what what can really be done with blockchain and healthcare and what's just tacking on the word blockchain to some sort of database or healthcare organization. So, what are the most common improper uses for blockchain and healthcare? You know, I, I think a bunch of them have um, even started to get weeded out. Uh, there, I, I think that there was a rush to put everything on a blockchain in a way that uh, really didn't achieve the business goals of all the participants. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing more of an emphasis on, on uh, privacy and leveraging kind of the record keeping and immutability uh, benefits that blockchains give as opposed to that like open and, and transparency benefit that a blockchain gives and and so like to make that concrete um where use cases around track and trace have really uh had take are where you um, perform transactions off chain and sign a proof that they happened using zero knowledge proofs Mm -hmm. and post that to a blockchain to have an immutable record that that transaction and that proof happened at a certain time you know as opposed to uh, posting the exact details of some business transaction on a blockchain. Um, because really, nobody in that ecosystem um, wants to be posting all of their transactional data for all of their competitors uh, and everyone in the ecosystem to see. But you do want, um, you still do want that uh, benefit of immutability to be able to prove to a regulator or your business parties that. Um, you know, this is the, the chain of custody. And the other clear place where I think this trend of um, moving from on-chain data to off-chain data has happened is in electronic health records. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go back and you read what people were writing in 2015, 2016, and you're like, oh my God, why did, we ever, why did anyone ever think that it was a good idea to put PHI on a blockchain? Um, and and we, we really sharpened up and created like a, uh, a set of technical constructs, I think, with off-chain data that make a lot more sense. 
Yeah, a lot of people, you know, you don't want to have your actual health records, images, clinical notes on the blockchain. You would just hash that information and just use the blockchain to target the point in where it exists and you can like grab it from there if you have the appropriate keys. Um, but what about like services like Filecoin and Storage Storage and uh, Sia Coin? Like, don't they provide storage solutions that are supposed to be um, private? Yeah, you know, I think that that's um, kind of tangential and additive to uh, using a blockchain for kind of transactional data or posting actual data onto a blockchain. I'm not experts in, in storage, Filecoin, Sia, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But um, my, um, what I do know about them is that they use a blockchain and cryptocurrencies as kind of a, a coordination mechanism to make sure that people are actually storing files on their computers to be able to retrieve them later, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to storing those files raw on a blockchain. You know, it, it's still... Uh, an off-chain construct of storage hmm. and see. private at that. What are some examples of companies' projects that are starting to use blockchain in healthcare in a positive way or in a way that's actually showing some good results, positive results? Um, I, I think there are a bunch of folks that you've probably talked to or talked about. Uh, so the Synaptic Health Alliance is, is a great example of um, a network of businesses that were um, traditionally competitors coming together on shared infrastructure and solving a business problem. Um, and today it's uh, provider data directory management. Um, but tomorrow, I'm, I'm sure that whatever they have in the books is, is going to be uh, a more impactful use case. I, I think that's a great example. Um, ProCredits is, is another great example. Um, I'm a, a big fan of the new um, business network called Melody. Mm-hmm. This is in my newsletter a few few weeks ago. It's a project being ran out of the auspices of the Innovative Medicines Initiative, mm-hmm. uh, a public-private partnership, the largest in the world between the Office of the European Commission and the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. Um, And under the Innovative Medicines Initiative, they funded this project called Melody uh, to the tune of 18.4 million euros. Hmm. And what this project is all about is using um, blockchain and, and a specific type of machine learning uh, to let 11 different pharmaceutical companies share their molecular data and train um, a machine learning algorithm on them without revealing any of your competitive information to the other participants in your consortia. That's uh, huge. And yeah. so these, these companies, yeah, it is. It's, it's a breakthrough. I'm, I'm amazed every single time I think about this thing. Um, so these companies, you know, although you may be training a machine learning algorithm locally on your server, the output is one single model that all of these pharma companies um, are able to use. And, you know, the sum of each of their contributions is exponentially higher than the individual um, contributions would be standalone. And to make this um, concrete for, for your listeners here, 
um, the way that they're using a blockchain is to orchestrate this machine learning process such that no party controls when and how data on their individual servers um, is being used and such that everyone has transparency uh, that none of the, the sensitive data on their individual servers is being exposed to their competitors. Um, and like the, the mind blowing thing is, is you're still able to train one single machine learning algorithm without revealing that information to your competitors. You know what I'm thinking about? It's only been, like you said, almost four or five years since um, Ethereum was initially released. Four or five years is not a lot of time in the healthcare space for adoption. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times I find myself getting, you know, not upset, but I wish things would move faster in the space. Like, look at all this potential. Why are we like, you know, slowly looking at regulations, slowly looking at ways to adopt blockchain? Uh, we should really be focusing swiftly and hard at this because it's revolutionary. That's my opinion. Yeah. But we should take a second right now and appreciate how much has happened in the last few years. Um, I think a lot have, a lot of companies have begun to understand its potential and. Yeah, I think what you are, you are doing, what I'm doing, it's helping to bring that cause to fruition. So, um, great job. Let's let's keep that moving forward. I think one of the I would like to ask you when these companies come together, these pharmaceutical companies, what is their biggest question when they're going to get started? Like, what do they hesitate about? What's their biggest concern? Is it that they're going to be sharing competitive information with their other competitors or? other things yeah i think um that would be a subset of, of the biggest concern which is around the business incentives and the governance model for these solutions you know blockchains have been around for a few years now and um, we've tried out a lot of technical solutions and we can solve a lot of really interesting technical problems with the blockchain um and I think that actors in healthcare are pretty sophisticated with blockchain, actually, at an enterprise level, which is where most of my work is, is done. So usually the questions aren't about technology. It, it's about um, the business model, the incentives for them to join. And um, since most blockchain solutions are uh, around a business network, a group of companies, you know, how are we going to govern this shared infrastructure, too? And, and that's the really difficult thing to figure out. It's not, how do we solve this problem technically? It's, how do I get all the parties at the table, make sure that they have an incentive to be um, using this network and contributing to it? And you know, third, once we have the shared infrastructure, um, who runs it, uh, I, I, technically who maintains it, how are decisions made, you know, who has authority, et cetera? What, what's the legal construct, if there is one, nonprofit, for-profit? And these enterprise blockchains, you know, you're talking about permissioned or private consortiums, so it's not a public blockchain in most cases that you're dealing with, right? They're not cryptocurrencies yeah. either in most cases that, that you're working with. Yeah, in, in, in most cases. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of a public network that people are leveraging. EY does some stuff with public Ethereum. That's pretty big. Which one? Uh, Ernest & Young. Okay, EY, gotcha. So do you think that there is, you know, a lot of people say, you know, private blockchains, don't, they won't really exist in the future. It's going to turn out to be like the intranet of the internet, right? Um, 
do you think that's going to happen with permission blockchains too eventually or do you think that there's going to be a use case for private blockchains moving forward i i think that the future of public and private blockchains will look different than what they do now mm-hmm. um, i think you're always going to have private networks kind of quartered off from everything else but increasingly what i would envision seeing um, is networks building on top of public networks you're able to leverage the decentralization of a base layer of ethereum that you know no one can tamper with no one on this planet would be able to roll back a transaction um, but you move one step up onto your own private network and still get all the benefits of, of what we think of as a, a, a private blockchain today you know only uh, a select group of companies are permissioned in, can make transactions, can see the data. Um, and if you need some sort of dispute resolution within this network sitting on top of a public network, then you escalate to the public network. Um, there are like a bunch of technical constructs for this. Side chains is probably the most popular of them. Um, and it, it, to like expound on that a little bit more, one of the really unique things about blockchains is the assurances of trust that they give you. And that rests on the game theoretical properties of a blockchain. Um, it's my belief that we're going, that that is where the real transformative value is in the future. And um, increasingly, we'll see more and more companies building on public blockchains as opposed to private. So let's break that down a little bit. Um, game theoretical architecture or frameworks that help to increase the trust between multiple parties who might not really be, um, you know, friends or might not be totally aligned all the time. So how does game theory get involved? I think this is the part where a lot of people don't understand about blockchain. Like, why don't you just use a shared database? Doesn't that accomplish the same thing? But it's about those business models and incentives. So can you kind of explain to, you know, someone who doesn't know much about game theory and blockchain, why it matters and how it could improve the way we work together? You know, what what makes blockchains work um, is this unique system of incentives that make it more profitable to tell the truth than it is to to be dishonest. Um, that's true of public networks, and it's true of private networks as well. Um, in private networks, you, what profitable might look like uh, it has to do more with like your status and not wanting to lie to your business counterparties. But you know, there's always going to be that um, utility maximization function of should I tell the truth and validate this transaction, or should I be dishonest and not? Um, and this system of incentives bets that it's more profitable or more utility maximizing for uh, a certain proportion of the network to not collude and be dishonest um, than it is for them to collude. And this unique system of incentives gives people a level of um, trust in the outcomes that a blockchain produces that you don't have on a normal computer. You know, if you have a network of 100 computers 
that is telling you that the answer to some sort of, of problem that you've given it is XYZ that is more trustable than a single computer that is telling you the answer is ZYX. Um, yeah. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Um, I'm just trying to think about how like someone who doesn't know anything about blockchain would receive it, like someone who's in the healthcare field and you know they're used to getting data from a database and organizing that data in some sort of ui um you know they i just want them to kind of comprehend why blockchain is a thing in, in general because a lot of people just don't know anything about uh blockchain and um i think what you're saying it's like it's a good example you said if 100 computers tell you a specific answer it's more trustworthy than the one computer and in reality right now we are pulling data from either one or a few servers usually controlled by the same entity or organization so what you're saying is instead of pulling it information from that one data server you'll be getting it from uh, a variety of different servers and all these servers are not actually from the same organization or company and they have different incentives so they have no reason to lie about it as opposed to the single entity they might come up with a reason to um, provide f false information for, for whatever reason it could be. Yeah. Or it could get uh, hacked and then that could be providing hack. I know false information as well. Yeah. I, I think that's a good um, explanation. I like to think of blockchains as networks of computers that reach consensus on a single state. And they do that by combining cryptography and game theory. In, in Bitcoin, the single state is a ledger of who has how much money. Mm -hmm. um, other networks, you know, following Bitcoin's lead, um, have extended this ledger to go beyond money and to more general applications. You can think of um, like Ethereum as analogous to one single computer uh, that has its own state, which autonomously runs programs, which are called smart contracts. And, you know, what's unique about this single virtual computer is that it has strong assurances of trust and you can expect it to execute the rules of the network consistently and objectively rooted in those verifiable cryptographic and mathematical properties of blockchains. Um, and like the, the really interesting thing is, is that these properties hold true even if individual participants act dishonestly and try to co-opt a blockchain for their own purposes. And uh, uh, blockchains are able to do this without any trusted central party, which is why we call them decentralized. Um, but that requires this, this network of autonomous independent computers um, participating in. What do you think about the you know the Bitcoin maximalists who do not find that blockchain is really appropriate for any other application other than a decentralized cash-based currency, cryptocurrency? Uh, you know, I think that there's probably truth at both extremes. Um, I think the Bitcoin maximalists probably have some points about blockchains being used for things that they aren't appropriate for, but I absolutely think that you know, a distributed database like a blockchain with unique assurance of trust can solve problems that 
you know, an SQL database cannot. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you there. Um, so, you know, let's talk about some of the problems in healthcare today. So we talked a little bit about privacy being a huge issue as well as, you know, data security with breaches happening pretty frequently. And I think that, you know, it's becoming more and more expensive for health systems and healthcare companies to protect their data. And a lot of them, I think, don't have um, the technical resources to really manage the influx of new security threats that are continuously coming in. Um, so mm-hmm. how how does blockchain help with protecting data? Healthcare data. I think in the long term, we'll see blockchain be used as this access management layer um, where individual participants are going to be able to see who accessed what data and when. And that'll add uh, like a new gate to um, data in a way that doesn't exist today. Um, I think that the other important aspect of data um, in blockchains would be that you can record like a fingerprint of what data looks like at a particular time and compare that um, in the future to ensure that data hasn't been tampered with. Sort of like an audit trail for healthcare data and then you'll have patients, providers, health insurance companies, um, even medical device companies, all these different organizations with some level of permissions to view the data, you know, edit the data or at least append the data, you can say more accurately. Um, and that makes sense to me. I, I think that's that's the direction we're going. I would like to be able to provide permission to my provider or to you know, multiple pro- providers um, if I want them to access my data or to a research organization, if they want to use my data, I want to be the one saying, sure, you can do that checkbox. I will let you check my data and use it. And in fact, potentially I can get directly paid for that versus having my data being stored in some EMR somewhere and then EMR data being sold to some third party, um, you know, data organization. And then that be de-identified and then mm-hmm. aggregated into a different group of data and then sold again and then i just won't have any idea who's really seeing my data and obviously at that point i have no i don't get paid for that at all but i think the future do you think that in the future we'll be able to get paid for the data that we produce on a daily basis yeah absolutely um i i think that we are at this really uh, unique point in time where we're regularly form performing what amounts to labor um, using all of these services on the internet uh, and not getting paid for it and that exists in healthcare and outside of healthcare uh, and that there's a, a growing sense that this data is valuable and we should be um, compensated for it appropriately and you know what I would all, all also add to the conversation um, about blockchains changing data um, is that blockchains and cryptocurrency are as much of a, a social phenomenon as they are a technical one, and they bring a certain set of values and social structures, some of which we want to keep, some of which we don't want to keep, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to the world that I think will eventually impact things like health data as well. And to, to be specific, 
Um, I think that there's this, um, this value of individual em empowerment uh, to control your own information, to, quote, to control your own money, as well as community governance of services. These blockchains, you know, at their core are community-governed shared infrastructures that are going to make their way into our health information as well. And so um, what I would like to see in the future is uh, like uh, data unions, so to speak, of community-governed institutions that will manage access uh, to my data on my behalf and make sure that the institutions that have access to my data are not using it in ways that I don't agree with. You know, I, um, for as much as we like to talk about blockchains giving us an audit trail, the average person on the street isn't going to be checking every single transaction associated with their health data if it's on a blockchain. But we may have like these data unions or higher order mediating institutions of our data that do that on, on our behalf, right? Um, and I think that that sort of social structure is, is something that um, has emerged out of the same place as, as blockchains and cryptocurrencies. I, I think that this social disruption that's happening with blockchain is causing a lot of concern by regulators, not just in healthcare, but broadly, you know, central banks and governments are unsure about the future of how blockchain is going to look. Countries have tried banning Bitcoin, whatever that means. Um, people yeah. have tried to ban miners or uh, impose additional taxes on people. But do you think that the government is going to, I guess the U.S. government, because other countries might have are more open to things like Estonia is very open to uh, distributed ledger technology. But in the United States, um, I think there's a lot of pushback on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency with regulators. And I think that their purpose is to protect the consumer. So they're always trying or to protect the investor. But I think that they're still thinking in a traditional framework of things, a traditional social structure, and they're not thinking in a new social structure. What do you think about regulators and um, what advice would you give a regulator? That, that, that's a good question. Um, I think that it, it's really hard to take the landscape today and figure out um, exactly what the impact of these technologies will be in 10 or 20 years. And so there needs to be some level of, uh, of caution and patience on behalf of regulators and individuals working in this space. Um, I think that a lot of these technologies that we're working with have the potential to be really transformative, but they are what amounts to experiments right now. Um, so we should recognize that they are experiments, you know, be upfront about the risks inherent in participating in those experiments, but also have um, state sanctioned places where it's okay to run those experiments. Um, because if, if we don't have those, we uh, potentially could crush some innovation before it even gets off the ground and push it to other parts of the world, like what we're seeing today.
Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. In June 2019, 10 large pharma companies and a couple European academic universities announced that they will be collaborating to train drug discovery machine learning algorithms using each other's data. The companies, including Bayer, GSK, Novartis, and Merck, are working with a Google Ventures-backed startup called Aukin to facilitate the sharing of the competitor's data without revealing commercial secrets to their rivals. It takes at least 10 years for a new drug to move from initial discovery to the marketplace, and it costs about $3 billion. Through this collaboration, the goal is to accelerate and reduce the cost of the discovery of drugs. Alkin uses blockchain and AWS technologies to execute these machine learning algorithms without having the data ever leave the owner's infrastructure. Only, only non-sensitive models are exchanged. The project is named Melody, short for Machine Learning Ledger Orchestration for Drug Discovery. And for more information about the project, please check out the show notes. And now back to the show with Robert Miller from Consensus Health. In addition to your weekly newsletter, you're also writing about, you're planning to write like a more full report on the industry and the the landscape of crypto or the Mm -hmm. landscape of blockchain and healthcare. Do you want to kind of just describe the landscape now in the in the space in your view and what some trends are? Yeah, um, and, and thanks um, for bringing it up. You know, I, I write that week to week newsletter that summarizes news and ideas and like articles that have been important and, and were valuable to me. Um, but I found that that suits like, one cohort of people. And there's this other cohort of people that, that don't care as much about the week to week news and, and just want the headlines um, and trends that are taking place. And so, you know, biannually, um, I'm going to be putting out a report summarizing what has happened in the past six months and what trends are going on in this space. And so in, in the past um, six months, since the start of 2019, uh, I think the major trends would be new business networks being formed. Uh, so we saw the Health Utility Network, Coalesce Health Alliance, uh, Melody, which you spoke about earlier, uh, Remedy Chain Consortia. Um, that, that's one big trend. We can dive deeper into all these two. Um, we're seeing capital markets pick up in the blockchain and healthcare space in a big way that they never have before. And so the uh, first four acquisitions in blockchain and healthcare have happened in the past eight months. You know, that, that, that's a, a crazy sign of maturity. Um, venture capital investment in blockchain and healthcare startups is on par to double compared to 2018. And we're seeing an uptake in the amount of uh, security token offerings in blockchain and healthcare too. So capital markets are picking up and, and that excludes what's happening with um, initial coin offerings or initial exchange offerings. And like, uh, sorry to cut you off, Ray, no, but, uh, the, the last um, trend I think is that supply chain applications are seeing the most activity in healthcare. There's a bunch of notable developments outside of that. Um, but in terms of what has had the most amount of important updates, it, it definitely was um, supply chain. And that arena has been dominated by incumbents instead of startups i think 
I see. And when you say supply chain, you're are you referring to in the pharma biotech industry, like just um, the traceability and tracking of drugs? Yeah, track and trace, and you know other parts of pharma supply chain as well. So um, Metaledger announced their working group on um, chargebacks and contracting, for example. What do you think about Facebook's Libra? It's an interesting topic, and I think a lot of people um, have opinions on it. But what's your your thoughts? I, I got a lot of thoughts, and uh, my my readers know that too. I hope people aren't annoyed. I talk about it every single week, um, but you know, I I, I think um, if you look at if you go ten years into the future and you look back at the history of blockchains and cryptocurrencies, the announcement of Libra will be on par with the announcement of um, or the creation of Ethereum and Bitcoin, probably. I think it is that fundamentally important. Um, taking like a really high level view here, what happened was is a cabal of corporations proposed the creation of a central bank that hmm. will compete with sovereign central banks. And, um, you know, that's, that's not hyperbole. And governments around the world are not treating that as hyperbole. The French finance minister, um, his name escapes me right now, said that it, it is out of question that Libra, Facebook's new-backed cryptocurrency, will become a sovereign currency. And that cannot and must not happen, was what the finance minister of France said. I mean, think, t- take a moment to think about how incredible that is that we have a corporation um a a group of corporations now issuing their own money that a sovereign state like france one of the most powerful countries in the world at one point now feels threatened by and um you know it, it has big implications for uh payments around the world, it's going to, if it gets off the ground, it has potential to give hundreds of millions or billions of people access to financial services that they didn't have before. Um, and that might have downstream effects for healthcare too. Why do you think is, is this reaction to Libra with a lot of people paying attention now? Why didn't we get this kind of reaction with Bitcoin? I guess we did, but it seems like Libra just seems to be more popular and today than sometimes bitcoin is <laughs> it's a good question um it's just there's reach because facebook already has billions of users so it's just got that existing user base so you know it's very easy to um, onboard those people because they already are familiar with the platform of facebook so what the next step is just adding another layer for these users to start using libra yeah, it's a certain level of, uh, of, of credibility, I think, that, um, that comes with this group of corporations. Compare the two. A pseudonymous person on the internet put a white paper out into the world saying, I'm creating a new form of peer-to-peer money that works based off of some kind of nebulous game theoretical properties. No one will control it. And Mark Zuckerberg comes out mm-hmm. and says, I have rounded up Visa, 
PayPal, MasterCard, some of the world's top venture capital firms, all of these partners, and we're going to create our own global payment system. I mean, clearly the latter has more credibility than the former. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would also note that, that Bitcoin had no business plan, no go-to-market. Um, it had uh, adoption and, you know, dark... Um, Darknet markets before it had legitimate commerce being done on it, and uh, in, in contrast, you know, Facebook has an army of lawyers that are going to make sure that they're complying with every single regulation that is out there. Um, and to your point, you know, millions of people off the bat are going to have visibility into Libra, um, and Bitcoin started on a, a pretty niche cryptography mailing list back in the day. But do you think they'll still have the same level of decentralization? And I know that in their plan, their white paper, in the blockchain technical paper, they describe how they'll be eventually moving towards more decentralization. And I get that. But will it ever reach the level of censorship resistance that Bitcoin has? Absolutely not. Okay. It's not even close. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they're they not competitors, too. You, you wouldn't use Libra for the same purposes that you use Bitcoin. Um, although they're not competitors, I think that they both do compete with central banks. Kind of an interesting nuance there. Hmm. Um, but uh, there's this trade-off between decentralization and efficiency. And if you plotted this on an axis, you would have, uh, you, you would have Bitcoin on one end with the most decentralized but inefficient system of money that there is um, and inefficient for the good reasons, you know, that that's what means that you can trust it. And on the other end, you have an SQL database run by Mark Zuckerberg, you know, extremely centralized, but extremely efficient. Um, And I think that Libra will end up somewhere right of the middle of this axis, closer to uh, centralized and efficient than it is decentralized and inefficient, but trustable. Um, at the end of the day, Libra wants to be a system of payments uh, more than anything. And that means that it needs a certain level of efficiency. So I think if it came down to sacrificing efficiency for decentralization, um, every single time Libra would, would vote for centralized efficiency over decentralization. Has consensus been speaking with Facebook about any involvement um, with the Libra project? You know, what, what I would point you to um, would be Joseph Lubin's article about Libra in, in courts. Uh, and, and that's all I'm going to say on the subject. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> um, okay. Have there been any like announcements in the past, um, you know, a few months or years that have caught you by surprise in the space? Uh, yeah, one announcement that caught me by surprise was a pretty prominent company in the space had a thirty million dollar ICO uh, announced that they had been uh, contacted by the SEC in the May of 2018, and we're returning their funds. Um, Which company was that? It was Simply Vital. Oh, yeah, I did hear about that. Yeah. And, they, and I um, I spoke to Kat, um, CEO of that company. 
one of my earlier episodes actually and you know i know that they tried to do everything very by the book and follow all the regulations so i was also surprised by that um it's hard it's hard to know what's right in the space because the laws all haven't been written yet and it's just very difficult to navigate and that's why there are so many people that are in the space they're moving from traditional markets to crypto markets lawyers moving from you know regular finance law to crypto law and it's growing very quickly the whole ecosystem i think yeah it is um and uh it's difficult to tell what went on um but i've had nothing but good interactions with cat and the team in the past so Hopefully everything's got settled. Um, it's just a very surprising development for me. Yeah, and I often feel like sometimes regulators might, you know, might be picking and choosing who they should go after because it's hard to get everybody. You know, you, they just don't have the resources. I think the SEC doesn't have the full resources to fully and comprehensively look at every single company that's in the space and do an appropriate evaluation of whether or not they're following the rules. Um, so I feel like some companies, you know, are just picked and, um, evaluated in, uh, to a greater extent. Um, but again, that's just speculation on my part. I have not worked in a government, uh, regulating body, so I don't know exactly you're probably closer to that than I am. Maybe you'll have some insight in how they identify uh, which companies to kind of go after. I don't have any insight for you, Ray. Okay. <laughs> That's one place I don't, yeah, I, 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 uh, I don't interact with those kind of regulators, at least. For the rest of the year, what are you, what are you thinking will be the, the trends moving forward? We already talked about some of the trends, but, um, you know, Libra being a big one, um, as you said, these business networks are forming around blockchain consortiums. So anything else that we might not have talked about? Um, I, I think that there have been a bunch of healthcare enterprises that are kind of sitting on the sidelines and, and waiting to find valuable use cases. And I think there are some design patterns that are starting to be repeated um, across use cases and networks. And we'll see enterprises in, that have been sitting on the sidelines increasingly engage in these new business networks or start their own or, or start working um, on blockchain and in healthcare in some way that they weren't before. And a great example of that would be Walmart just showed up out of nowhere um, and announced that they were participating in, in two different FDA DSCSA pilots and Mediledger. Um, and, you know, Express Scripts is participating in the Coalesce Health Alliance, you know, before they hadn't been doing anything in the blockchain space, as far as I know. Um, so that, that, that's one big trend. It, increasingly, I think um, the, the kind of weights and focal point of the industry will keep on shifting towards enterprises and incumbents. And we're going to see that continue until maybe late 2020 or 2021 after technology has developed a little bit more and we understand business models better. Um, I think you're going to see a bunch of blockchain and healthcare startups try to pivot from what their original mission was if they can't achieve that and launch like new products or um, try different business models 
um, a bunch of them are out there are, are struggling. Do you think STOs or security talk token offerings are going to be more popular and ICOs? I mean, they're generally like very similar. It's just the fact that STOs are registered with the, the government basically. Yeah. Um, I haven't formed a full opinion on STOs. Um, I have a bunch of thoughts, but, um, I wouldn't bet on a way that they'll go or they wouldn't. So, mm -hmm. Um, a genus bio, a publicly traded biotech company on the NASDAQ, um, announced that they were going to have a $100 million security token offering to fund the future sales of their anti-PD-1 antibody, um, which is in phase two clinical trials right now. Um, and if, if you buy like one share of this STO, then you have the rights to future sales if it passes all of its trials. Um, and you know, what, what is interesting about that construct is that it gives investors the ability to invest in one product. You know, you can invest in a particular anti PD one antibody as opposed to a genus bio, the publicly traded biotech company, which is analogous to a basket of products that are in market and in the pipeline. You know, it's similar to the difference between buying a single stock and buying an index fund. You know, single stock is, is more concentrated, higher risk, higher return. Um, but if you really believe in one thing, then you, you're willing to take that level of risk on. Whereas, you know, an in, in index fund is made up of a bunch of different things, um, lower risk, but lower returns. And similarly, buying a Genus Bios STO for their, um, I think it's AGEN2034, particular product that they have in the pipeline. Um, that is very high risk, very high returns. Um, one product, as opposed to buying their stock, you know, you still get exposure to uh, AGEN2034, um, but you're also getting exposure to a bunch of other stuff that they either have in the market or in their pipeline. Um, and you know, the, the, the thing about STOs is that there's not anything necessarily new about the underlying assets of the STO. That's why they're regulatory compliant. You know, you can buy pieces of the potential future sales of a particular drug in a pipeline today. Um, and there are like certain How do you do that today? There are like established commercial contracts that biotech companies engage with or licensing rights or um, that, you and I wouldn't be able to, but, but another pharma company might be able to. I see. Yeah, you can form agreements, but those are like exclusive, more or less agreements. It's not open to the public. But you're saying with STOs, uh, the public has an opportunity to invest in this more granular level of, um, you know, it's essentially like. When you're betting for a sports game, if you're betting for like a football game, for example, it's you can bet with just a spread, or you can bet on how many yards a certain player might actually uh, gain in the in the game or something like that. So that's you're going more granularly, and I didn't know about how um, Genus Genus is doing that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that that's a good analogy for it. Um, and so one of the open questions for me to, to your point is whether this will enable the broader public to participate in ways that they don't today. And that's, um, that's 
where I, I, I think it, it makes or breaks STOs is if they enable new types of buyers. Um, well, because I mean, if you think about assets, this, sorry, if you have like a, a patient who wants this drug to go to trial and they really are, and they have some money to, to invest in, they would be very interested in doing so and enabling that person to do so makes sense to me. So I think that there will be new players coming in and trying to invest in that kind of STO. I, I agree, and that's the ideal world. Um, the, the practical world is that if a patient doesn't have a net worth above a million dollars, they're not an accredited investor, and they don't have access to a whole range of opportunities that people who are wealthy do. Um, so you would have to be an accredited, uh, accredited investor to buy Genesis STO. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so I didn't know that. I thought it was open to anyone, uh, including non-accredited investors. So any kind of like um, e-trade account holder or something. I see. Yeah. So oh, yeah. That, that's more of a regulatory problem than it is a technical one. Yeah, that, that's always bothered me, that uh, limitation on non-accredited investors. I guess, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can have anyone with any amount of money gamble as much as they want in a casino, but you're not allowed to have them invest in companies. It's kind of strange. Yeah, exactly. You know, we let, uh, we let people across this country buy lottery tickets, but we don't let them buy shares in some of the highest growth technology companies in the world. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It, it's a moral issue, and I don't know why we're not addressing it more, um, you know, with an open mind. It's, it's strange. I think. I think it's really to protect the the institutional investors, um, so they they have the advantage and ability to invest, and then smaller guys don't have that ability. And I think that's kind of cynical, but I think it's kind of true. Yeah, the the place that these laws came from um, was. Uh, trying to establish some sort of means of whether someone is a sophisticated investor or not. I mean, the, the, the legal term is accredited investor. You know, are you accredited to invest in high-risk opportunities? Um, and the very blunt instrument of the government in this case was, do you have a million dollars? But there are lots of ways that someone can be sophisticated. And um, most of them don't include having a million dollars. We should develop um, other ways to uh, uh, to certify someone to participate in these high risk opportunities. You know, a developer probably has a better sense of evaluating a technology company does mm-hmm. of, of what a technology company does in its business model than the average person with a million dollars. Especially if the code is open source, and you know they have access to that, so you know they could differentiate between. Good code and bad code. Um, very cool. So I have a few like more philosophical questions for you. Um, what are your thoughts on the singularity that's supposed to happen in like twenty forty five? I was not expecting that. I, uh, I I don't worry too much about the singularity. I I, I think that um, we are developing kind of tools and machines um, that perform really sophisticated uh, automated actions. But 
nothing close to um, general intelligence. Um, so I'm, I'm not very worried. I will caveat that by, uh, by saying I think we should act as if everyone was really worried, <laughs> although I'm not. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think we should act that way. And, and that's because, you know, if I'm right and we shouldn't be really worried, well, nothing really happens. But if I'm wrong, um, the world ends. So right. unlimited downside limited upside and right. we should plan accordingly how are incentive mechanisms created for blockchain cryptocurrencies especially in healthcare um good question and it's one that thousands if not tens of thousands of people are working at around the clock to figure out right now uh, because there's a lot of value at stake for the first people or, or set of people that uh, crack the code. But I think a good place to start this discussion is just that, that we haven't cracked the code yet and we don't fully understand these systems uh, because they're fundamentally new types of ways of, of organizing activity, um, cryptocurrencies at least. And there are emerging mechanisms to incentivize people uh, to do things, to your point. But um, if, if we're talking about creating a token or a cryptocurrency, we haven't seen, we don't have enough evidence that um, someone has been able to create sustainable long-term value with these things. And so we need to start at that place where um, we're experimenting and we need to take that mindset and there's associated risks with those experiments. But there are this, this emerging set of incentive mechanisms um, that are, are useful and tools in our toolbox now. So you've got uh, things like staking, where if you set aside a portion of money for a period of time, you get discounts. Um, so good example of that, uh, if you had a telemedicine app, Maybe you need to stake 100 TM tokens in order to get a 10% discount on how much it would cost to talk to a physician. Or um, burning tokens so that uh, for every transaction, 1% of tokens in that transaction are burned. You know, the supply going down, demand being constant, the price should appreciate. Alone, that mechanism doesn't work, but um, with other things it might. Um, but these, it, it, burning in particular needs to be paired with other things, I think. And there are other things like governance tokens, one, one token, one vote, uh, mechanism like lock drops. That's like the past three months that has emerged, um, where you what's lock up tokens. Yeah, what's uh, Edgeware is a network building on Polkadot. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's a, a, very, a new, network um, that is trying to create like a network of blockchains and uh, kind of confusing and there's a, a project building on top of them um, with its own token the way that you get their tokens is by um, sending ethereum to a smart contract and locking it up for a period of time 
So if you're willing to send a certain amount of Ethereum to their smart contract for a year, you get you know X percentage of your the Ethereum that you've committed for a year um, as Edge tokens on Edgeware's network. Um, and that's like a new way of issuing tokens that we haven't seen before. Um, and it involves more work and more opportunity cost than you know the previous models of I will issue tokens and you will buy them. Um, and I think that's increasingly the world that we're going to move towards in, in creating these networks and in our incentive mechanisms where you need like you need opportunity costs and you need to engage people in some way. Um, it's, it's not enough to just create a token and assume that people will buy and sell in that token. What do you think about airdrops where companies are basically just giving away free tokens um, in the hopes that they will build a greater network or a larger network of people? Uh, I, I don't know that I've ever seen an airdrop generally be successful. I think that there have been instances of like very focused airdrops that make more sense. Um, so Handshake is a project trying to build um, a decentralized domain name service, you know, fundamentally decentralizing a piece of the internet that is centralized today. And they are airdropping a huge portion of their tokens. But critically, in order to participate in that airdrop, you need to have a GitHub account with a certain level of activity. Hmm. And you need to sign up for that airdrop as opposed to just sending it to everybody with an Ethereum address. Um, and I think that that like focused level, um, that, that uh, focused go to market, so to speak, of their airdrop is going to be more successful than, you know, the spray and pray sort of thing. Um, and uh, since, you know, crypto, all, all cryptocurrencies in some way or another are competing to be a form of money. And money is um, is formed by community and illusory belief in it. You need that community and that community engagement to make these things work. And just throwing, you know, tokens at somebody isn't enough to to make something money. You need engagement too. Interesting. Um, so when you talk about the behavioral economics of things, and you want to influence someone to. Um, perform a certain way and now i'm thinking more in healthcare because there are lots of providers that wish that they can influence their patients to eat healthier or to be more active um you know cook better meals be more social you know how does that come into play in this space well i i think taking the frame that um all cryptocurrencies or tokens are trying to be money mm -hmm. is in a light in enlightening way um, to view the blockchain and crypto space and healthcare as it pertains to incentives. You know, we have money right now. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it's been around for the entire history of humanity, and we transact in it literally every day. Um, and we can pay people to do things today. You know, there's nothing stopping. A provider from paying a patient to do X, Y, Z. Um, and blockchains and cryptocurrencies do not add anything new fundamentally to the ability to pay someone. Mm 
you know, what they do add is, is a more um, efficient mechanism of payment that settles faster, is more trustworthy, et cetera, and that you can program. And so I think um, it's not in the, the, the applications of just being able to pay someone that there's going to be innovation with cryptocurrencies and incentivizing behaviors, but instead in, in using the programmatic nature of cryptocurrencies. Um, and, and that'll help us coordinate activities in a better way than we could before. Um, and move around money more simply according to rules um, that we can't do today. Understood. I think, you know, some of the hesitancy behind that is, you know, if a token is worth something today, let's say it's worth a dollar and tomorrow it might be worth like, you know, a dollar fifty, um, and then you're you're getting rewarded in tokens, it is a different accounting system completely. And how do you, you know, file your taxes? And I think that's a burden that people are trying to avoid. And I think that's one of the barriers for adoption in general for cryptocurrencies is this you know do, do you have to you know tell the irs exactly when you received a token like or if, like if it was a five dollar five dollars worth of tokens because you ate breakfast or didn't smoke cigarettes for a month or something um mm-hmm. how is that going to be incorporated into your turbo tax you know i think that's one of the and i know that you're not an expert on this for sure but i'm just thinking like i do think that's one of the major barriers for adoption yeah um you know i i own a bunch of crypto and i did before and i had to pay taxes based off of my activity in crypto and it was not fun (laughs) no yeah the the rules are not clear at all Um, and i just ended up i think way overpaying um, what i should have because the rules aren't clear, but I suppose that's the cost of doing business in this space. So that's okay. Um, y- yeah, y- you know, but you're I, a trader. Think- you might be like you're more aware of the um, industry. People who are they don't really understand blockchain, but someone's giving them tokens because they're eating, are being healthy. Like they are just bystanders of this new phenomenon. Um, how do they manage all this? I think there's not enough education behind it yet well you know i i don't know that we'll ever get to that point might be Mm. the answer um i think that we don't really understand when and where sustainable value is created by a token and the range of use cases um, that do generate a sustainable value creating token is probably pretty small particularly within healthcare. Um, I have like intuitions where that might be, but I, no one that? can tell you for certain where that is. Um, I'm writing something on that now. Okay. So you know, I, would, I would encourage your readers to, to sign up to my newsletter and you'll mm-hmm. get notified when it comes out. Um, and, and there'll but, be links to uh, the Beyond Blocks uh, newsletter on in the show notes. So please check that out, everybody. Cheers. Much appreciated. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't think the future looks like every single service having their own token denominated in some different type of monetary unit um, and people having to trade in and out of you know telemedicine tokens and my insurance tokens and you know fluctuating exchange rate. That's just such a high friction user experience and carries 
so many um, efficiency and mental costs associated with that is not going to happen. Hmm. Um, and at, at least not if there's not some serious economic models behind that that are generating sustainable value in these tokens. And what the world like more likely in, in short to medium term looks like, I think is um, services that are using crypto as a payment rail or doing it in stable coins where one token is equal to $1 and you can do the same sort of programmatic, you can program these tokens in the same way that you can tokens um, that don't have anything backing them or in the same way that you can with Ethereum and do the same sort of things. What are your thoughts on other types of, you know, large blockchain protocols like EOS or NEO or Cardano that are sort of competing or maybe um, similar, but claiming to be better than Ethereum? Um, well, I, I, I think that it's going to be really hard to replicate what Ethereum did um, in the same way that it's really difficult to replicate what Bitcoin did. Those are kind of unique events in, in history um, where Bitcoin had a really fair launch uh, and now all these protocols uh, th that are trying to compete with Bitcoin um, have launches that are not as fair, where uh, th there's always going to be some sort of question about the motives of, of the founders. And similarly, one of the really unique things about what, what Ethereum did and, and has done um, is that it has this community of people that are extremely passionate and ideological and religious almost about Ethereum in ways that other protocols just cannot compete with. Um, there are, Ethereum by far has the most amount of developers in the blockchain space. Uh, by far has the largest ecosystem of applications and tools and um, you know, arguably enterprises building on it as well. And it, it it is much, I think that the network that wins out will have the most amount of uh, missionaries and not mercenaries. You know, we've seen other platforms try to pay developers to build on them before. Microsoft's cell phone is a great example of that. They, they did everything they could to get developers to build on their platform. But at the end of the day, it was the really passionate ideological people that were building on other smartphones. Um, building things that people actually wanted to use that led to those smartphones winning out. And we'll see the same thing happen with protocols, too. And, and the last thing that I would add is that um, Ethereum has a unique level of decentralization to it that is not achievable by, probably, very highly likely, is not achievable by other protocols as well. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, um, I could see that. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it to be implanted? Uh, uh, probably like, I think my or like the inside of my thigh, where it's not readily visible, but it is readily accessible if I need to access it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I suppose it depends on what that microchip is doing. Yeah, I imagine it'd be like an RFID chip or something. So if you're in the vicinity of a 
scanning area and you'd you know in addition to scanning you and your chip you'd put in like a four digit pin to verify your identity let's say you know the answer to that question is i would never let that get in my body (laughs) the real answer um just mindful about my privacy in the moment that that happens uh i'm going to be tracked in all sorts of new ways that you know go above and beyond how i'm being tracked today yeah, think of the, all, all the convenience that you'll have oh yeah you know i'm i'm, uh, I'm one of those, those people that is willing to sacrifice convenience for for my privacy have you done a 23andme or some sort of genotyping geno sequence uh, genetic sequencing test no and there's no way i'm going to you couldn't pay me to get it done okay very interesting um well, um, Bert, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, finally, we got together and had this talk. Is there anything else that you want the audience to know or something you'd like to share before we close out here? You know, I, I think things like what you and I are doing are important, Ray. Uh, that getting out there, doing education, talking to people, putting content out. Um, and I would encourage the audience to engage in that too, write things, talk to people, build things. You know, it is the earliest of early days for Mm -hmm. blockchain in healthcare. Um, And if you're wondering if you've missed the boat, you have not. Mm -hmm. There is a long and explosive road of growth ahead of us for this industry, but it only happen if people like Ray uh, and others keep on putting out content and building things. So um, go, go ahead and support other people that are doing that and go out and and do it yourself thanks for having me on today hey y'all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to health unchained on stitcher soundcloud google play and itunes join the health unchained community on our telegram group t.me slash health unchained If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.